we are here uh, this morning together in uh, the final uh, a couple of verses in section of First Peter. Uh, this uh, letter we've been studying uh, over the past seven weeks now in this teaching series called The Way of the Exile. And then over the course of these past seven weeks, we've been uh, eavesdropping, as it were, reading somebody else's mail as uh, one of Jesus's closest friends and followers and apostle and leader in the early church uh, has written this letter to uh, all of these churches that are spread out around what is modern day uh, Turkey, uh, somewhere in the mid 60s AD, this ancient letter written to this ancient people, specifically uh, helping these, these new Christians uh, think through what does it mean for us to be followers of the way of Jesus and citizens of Bithynia or Cappadocia or these ancient cities where uh, that this is a Roman empire that we're within. How do I be Roman citizens and also citizens of uh, this kingdom that Jesus says he's bringing to the world through him and through his church? How do we go about those two things? Because there seems to be uh, some dissonance between those two, between the Roman empire and the kingdom of God. And as we've looked over this letter, just to kind of uh, give us a summary uh, previously on uh, and summarize the season so far as we come to the season finale. Uh, as we've looked at this letter, we've seen how um, it exists, it comes to us as this powerful, inspired by the Spirit of God, written by the Apostle Peter, theology and handbook for how Christians fit in this world, which for Peter has been through this imagery, this language of Christians being like exiles, Christians being uh, like refugees, like immigrants, like sojourners, strangers and aliens within the culture they find themselves. They are citizens of Rome or Galatia or Los Angeles, but at a truer and deeper level, citizens belonging to the coming kingdom of God. And as such, we live within that reality in a life of dedication and allegiance to the person of Jesus. And as we do, this puts us at seeming odds with the power and political structures of our day and the customs that have been laid out by them. We, we simply see a difference there. Or at least, as Peter argues, there should be some difference there. To summarize again, in chapter one, uh, Peter laid out for us a way of being in the world that's built around the implications of the past tense historical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his future tense promised return and restoration of all things, and in the meantime, his present tense reigned through his spirit-empowered people. Chapter one was him summarizing this. As he moved into chapter two, he was laying out for us how this present tense rule of Jesus looks like a hope that his people have in the midst of the lives that they live. But this hope actually looks like holiness, and that holiness actually looks like love, where we are uh, loving one another. We are loving our community. We are loving our city. He's developed this way of the exile that is built and moves through that. As he continues, he develops that a people who are holy and loving and have hope in Jesus, that they're being built up as this new temple of God, where God's presence dwells and people can come to experience God. But being a part of the temple of God and again existing in Rome leads to challenges. And so in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he was dealing with uh, how do Christians engage and respond to uh, government and, and relational and economic structures within the world. And he called us to this way of subversive submission. That we engage to culture, we honor our employers, we honor masters, we honor the government, and yet we do so so that we might give them the hope that we have from a posture of gentleness and respect. He's been developing this whole theme, and as he continues last week, that the, the grounds for how we do that is based on the deep sense and reality that Jesus rose from the dead and that he's coming again. 
And that Jesus' way of turning over the, the, the powers of this world through him suffering is now not only something that we believe in, but something that we follow his example in. We allow ourselves to undergo suffering and, and pushback and whatever that might be within our culture, acknowledging that it's through those things that Jesus is turning over the world to himself. And so now as we arrive to the end of the letter, Peter and the Holy Spirit through him, weaves, condenses, and applies all of that into one last little section for us where he gets very practical. And so with that being said, why don't we read the passage uh, beginning in chapter 12 of verse 4, or chapter 4. We'll read this and then I'll pray over us and then we'll begin to start to see how he's doing what he's doing. So look with me in chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12, 1 Peter. Let's read this together where Peter writes, Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those of us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, so then I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, each and every one of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to deliver or to someone to devour. He doesn't want to deliver, to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we uh, are so grateful uh, for your Spirit's work uh, in 
inspiring and leading Peter to write this letter that here we are 2,000 years uh, removed and yet it still speaks so much power to us. But we pray that, uh, that through this today that you might help us to once again set our eyes on Jesus and on what he's doing in the world and what he wants to do through us. I pray that you would uh, lead each and every one of us, uh, God, just to, to, to drink from this passage and that we might walk away with one particular thing that you're inviting us into uh, in this next season. God, would you aid us to become people who walk the way of the exile? In your name we pray, amen. So like I said a minute ago, uh, before we read the passage, what we just saw Peter do is uh, wrap together and bring together all of this language and this imagery and these themes that he's been doing and hitting on throughout the rest of the letter. This is, in many ways, the kind of summary statement. This is the Sparks Notes version of, of what he said throughout this letter uh, over the past seven weeks. And so it's kind of a helpful way to bring us together. If you haven't been here, um, this is great. You're getting kind of, you know, Peter in a shot glass today. Um, and so it'll be a little more distilled. And so to summarize what uh, he's saying here, really what he's been saying throughout the rest of the letter, is what he sets up for us is uh, a way of the, the exile, the way that he calls us to, and is one that's marked and, and, and embodied by a glorious community of humility. And, and what you can just see is he, he breaks down the text where uh, we have the glorious uh, ideas of glory. And what does that mean in, in the verses 12 through 19, those seven verses? And then he's going to move to talking about the community or the church of God. And then finally, he's going to talk about being humble. He's going to talk about humility. All of those, you put those together and you find this final statement that the way of the exile is this glorious community of humility. And so let's look at those first seven verses with glorious now, what you'll see, if you just do a top-down kind of view, overview of uh, those seven verses, 12 through 19, uh, you'll find right at the center is this three times repeated use of the word glory. If you have your Bible and you're a marker and you're a Bible person like me, um, you can see it there at the end of uh, chapter 13 when his glory is revealed, in 14 at the end, the spirit of glory, and then again in 16, but let him glorify God. There's a glory center to these seven verses. It's actually something that he hits on throughout the rest of the next chapter. In verse one of chapter five, there's glory there. You can circle that one. In uh, verse four, in verse 10, in verse six, uh, he's got glory or these themes of being exalted and glory is all over the place. But we need to stop because so often words like holy or grace or glory, we read them and we're just kind of like Bible word, right? Um, at best, if we slow down, we think of being, you know, of glory as maybe moral perfection. Most of the time when I think of glory, I think of like uh, shining, right? Like uh, for a human to be glorious, we would just like bioluminescent, right? Or like radiation poisoning and they're like glowing green or something like that. Uh, we, we, that's what we tend to think when we think of uh, glory, and although there's, there's some passages that talk about God's glory as this kind of shining thing, uh, most often glory is language of honor. It's language of fame. Uh, being glorified is an exalted status. It's not like a bioluminescent status. It's a exalted above. There is a difference between, there's a being set above. Even more than that, glory is somehow, there's not a clean jump into English because of the fact that on one hand, glory talks about exalted status and fame and honor, but it's also used to talk about the presence of someone. Uh, when when the, God's glory rests on the temple, it's, it's, it's talking about God's there. 
Uh, you can even, there's this the fun word for this, this Shekinah glory. It's the presence of God that every now and then somebody gets a, a witness of and they use this language of seeing God's glory. They're not seeing, are they seeing him shining? Are they seeing him as honorable in all of his honor? This glory is, a, is an interesting word. But what Peter draws us to is that as he begins to set this up is that glory is something that's actually set in the way of the exile. That this idea of honor, fame, being you know, an exalted status, if we're, on, if we're honest, it's the thing that everybody kind of wants. We all want glory. We all want to be honorable. We all want to be the sort of person that walks in the room and everybody's like, oh, Ryan's here, right? And not for you know, bad reasons, but for good reasons. Most of the time that happens when people leave the room. Um, at the same time, this glory as the presence of God, as God's glorious presence is, is not just something that we want, but actually it's the thing that we need. And so this idea of glory, right at the center of it, at the center of what he's setting up here is the thing that you want and need is found in the way of the exile. But the way that you get it and what it's for is different than what you might have heard. As you continue into verses 12 through 19, what you see surrounded, and again, if you want to go through and circle this, is the concept of suffering. You can just go through, and in verse um, 12 at the beginning, trial, and then the test, and then sufferings, being insulted in verse 14, suffer, suffer, suffer. So it seems as though the way of glory that he's going to set before us is one that's surrounded by suffering, which again runs counter to what you and I think about fame and exalted status. So if you just look, let's go back to verse 12, where he talks about not being surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, when it comes upon you specifically to test you. So what is this fiery trial that he's talking about? It sounds like it's a pretty big deal if it's a fiery trial, but, but if you go back to the beginning, I think you guys have the slide, or you can just turn there. In chapter 1, verse 6, where Peter is now ending and beginning the book with the same theme of a fiery trial. Look at, in verse 6. I think it's behind me there. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, though you've been grieved by various trials, so that the test, there's trials in the test language that we just saw here in chapter 4 that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by a fire, a fiery testing, a fiery trial, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this fiery trial, Peter starts talking about glorious sufferings. And the first thing that he says about glory is that you have to go through sufferings in order to experience some kind of glory. Because the process of suffering is like this refiner's fire that when you throw gold in there, it either burns up impurities or it brings them up to the top that they can be pulled away. And the gold that's remaining can be something that's actually more worthwhile. So the first thing is we don't like that. <laughs> I want glory and I want fame that doesn't make me have to deal with my junk or deal with other people's stuff, right? I want to I figure out, and that's why so often we go through glory through career, because I don't honestly have to deal with a lot of my stuff. If I can output and produce enough, then I can find some level of fame and honor and glory. But Peter says this sort of glory comes out of a testing work where impurities are brought out and that the gold that's remaining, the you that's there, the genuineness of your faith might be found better than before. But although all sufferings to some extent are trials that bring out the best and the worst in us. Peter says that there's a specific type of trial that he's talking about that brings out glory. As he continues in verse, four, uh, verse 13, where he says, insofar as you share in whose sufferings? It was not, I'm not, you can say it, it's okay. Christ's suffering, thank you, verse 13. Christ's sufferings. So the sort of sufferings that are the refiner fire that bring out the best in us and are the pathway to glory are the ones in which we share in the sufferings of Christ. 
And that's what he goes on to say. Specifically, those that share in Christ's suffering now are those who rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed in the future. So the way to glory is a future tense awaiting that comes with us. Those who share in Jesus' sufferings will share in his glory. And again, we keep asking questions. Well, what does it mean to share? We're just asking questions. What does it mean to suffer in, to suffer in Christ's name or whatever this looks like? In verse 14, to share in Christ's suffering is to be insulted for the name of Christ. So for us, we think of, of suffering for Christ's name or something like that, and we go to um, Christian martyrs throughout history who have been beheaded by ISIS or have been murdered for the name of the faith, and those are with, absolutely within this. We see in Revelation where the martyrs are actually in a glorified status now, not just when Jesus returns in his glory. But what he's calling us to is the fact that, that everyone who walks in the name of Jesus and feels the pushback, whether verbal or in whatever way, as far down to being murdered for the faith and just the general dissonance that we feel with our world because we walk in the name of Christ is is encapsulated within this. That all of this experience has a way of bringing out the impurities in our lives and bringing them out and, and proving the genuineness of our faith. Those of us who are insulted for the name of Christ... This is happening within, for, it's not murdered for the name of Christ, but in, in, it, it's contained within this. But for Peter, in his context, he exists within an honor-shame culture where an insult is about the worst thing that you can do because, and we're moving this way with social media, is that insulted for the name of Christ, it's like cancel culture um, is basically what's going on. He's saying, blessed are you who are canceled for the name of Jesus, where you feel like you've been cut out from everything because of the fact that as you enter into that way, that's actually where blessing and glory is. And this is a blessing, why? He continues there in verse 14, where he says, you are blessed because what? The spirit, and there it is again, of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God resting on you is language from um, Isaiah chapter 11, uh, where it's talking about uh, the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus before Jesus. It's prophesying what Jesus is going to be like. And the prophet Isaiah talks about Jesus as being one whom the spirit of God's glory and the spirit of God rests on. And Peter hijacks that and he's like, well, that was talking about Jesus, but now that's talking for anybody who walks in the way of Jesus. They have the same spirit of Jesus, the same glory as Jesus resting on them when they walk through the sufferings of this world. See, the way to glory looks far different than we thought it does. And then finally, in verse 16, he continues driving this point home, suffering, that this, this potential to be ashamed. He says, do not be ashamed as a Christian. This word Christian for us is normal now. It's what most of us identify as. When you know, Facebook asks us what we believe in, if we're really like hip or whatever, we're like follower of the way or something like that. Christian is, is what for most of us we identify as. It was a derogatory term for Christians back in the day. Um, little Christs um, is one way that you can translate it. It would also be the, the chin, um, I-A-N, uh, like Herodians. Those were those who worshiped and followed after Herod. And what they're labeling them as is these people that are following after this crucified Jew. Uh, there's graffiti that, that we found in Rome from around the time of Jesus that has a, um, it's a carving, like old school graffiti, of a man worshiping um, what looks like a human uh, up until the head, and it has the head of a donkey on it and being crucified. Um, and, it, and it says, Alex Amenos worships his God is kind of the tagline. Um, the whole joke was these Christians are those who worship, um, worship the, they, they worship a donkey, um, to not use um, the language that, that maybe we might want to use there. 
the whole thing is that this is derogatory language of the fact that the dissonance that is felt as existing as exiles in the world as strangers and refugees. And Peter says, gladly embrace that reality because that's the work that's bringing out a genuine faith within you. And the thing is, at the end of the day, all trials can make you stronger people. Like that, that doesn't kill me, can only make me stronger, is absolutely true. But at the same time, Peter is saying it is only the shared sufferings in Jesus that make not just stronger people, but glorious people. And he's reconstructing this idea of glory around social exclusion, around insult, around persecution, around suffering. It's this divine paradox of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that glory comes from suffering and is given to us in verse 16 for the sake of glorifying. It's not for ourselves. We have the spirit of glory resting on us as we wait for the spirit of Jesus to be revealed specifically so that we might glorify God. It's this big glory circle that's going around that we've been invited into. And this is the way that we've been called as Christians to set our eyes on a glory that comes from following in the way of Jesus, even if it's suffering, because that's what Jesus did. First Peter 2, where we were a few weeks ago, he says this, for to this, to what? The way of of glory through suffering. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, being Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges judgely. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you are straying like sheep but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The way, it is not enough to believe that Jesus died for my sins and so what that means is because he suffered, I don't have to. To see Jesus is to go, I'm following in his way. I'm following in his footsteps and like him, I believe that because of the resurrection on the other side of suffering, there's glory. And that's why we need the resurrection for this to make any sense. But what I love is in verse 15, in the middle of all this, you might have noticed we jumped over it. Peter goes, not so fast. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean all suffering is is glorious suffering. In verse 15, he says this. But um, real quick, don't let any of you suffer um, as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. He says, not all suffering is Christian suffering. Not all suffering is glorious suffering. Just because you got a parking ticket doesn't mean that the devil's persecuting you, Right? (laughs) It's the county. Um, <laughs> the, park, the parking ticket, that there is, there is genuine levels of suffering, of things like car wrecks, of things um, like diseases and challenges that come in our lives. Uh, but, but Peter is, is saying th- that not those things, but specifically like somebody that is in jail because they murdered somebody, but at some point he prayed a prayer, like he believed in Jesus but never really did. He's not allowed to be in jail and be like, I'm here because of my faith. It's like, no, you killed someone, dude. Like, that's what happened here. In the same way, he's calling for Christians, don't walk around in your lives being sinful or stupid, and then whenever people don't like you, you get to go, oh, you get to throw the Jesus card out. Which is why he goes to meddling. He, I love that he's like murderers, right? And then he adds meddling, which is just like, I don't think those are the same. For him, he puts these together. Some argue because that this meddling is an issue within the churches that he's writing. And meddling is a weird word, so let me just read what he means by meddling. What he means by meddling uh, is this, uh, uh, judging outsiders, becoming overly entangled with family drama, bringing up political discontent, or tactless attempts at evangelism. 
So by meddling, Peter goes, yeah, this like just being a busybody, it comes when you're judging people because you've got some kind of moral high ground. It comes from you getting overly entangled in family drama and then your mom is mad at you because you're talking to your sister this way. That doesn't, you're not, that's not Christian suffering. Or suffering and pushback because you're always talking about how discontent you are with Caesar because he's not Jesus. And you have these tactless attempts at evangelism where you're trying to win people over, but you don't do it from a place of uh, grace or truth. This is something, I mean, it's, it's so good to read the Bible sometimes we realize how far the church has come because we don't deal with any of these things. Um, I, Peter calls for you to ask the question, I, am I genuinely suffering? Is this me, the fires that I'm feeling coming because I'm stupid, because I'm sinful, or is this genuinely because I'm trying to be faithful to Jesus? Because so, I mean, I've heard stories of churches that like, where they're like gonna do like a building expansion or whatever, and so they raise all the money and they build it all, and then, you know, the county comes in to like make sure it's up to code, and then they can't open the building on time because they didn't do their due diligence in building the building. And then the pastor gets up and he's like, it's the devil. It's like, no, you guys didn't do your job. You were stupid. You aren't allowed to claim that. Peter calls for you to ask, am I, and what am I experiencing? Is this genuine f- suffering that's coming out of faithfulness to Jesus? Because this thing is, is when we follow Jesus, suffering may feel like a failure, a mistake. We may feel prone to be ashamed of it, is what he writes. But he says once and again, three times, this is where glory is found forever, right now, and, and, and from the past and what Jesus has done since then. And so in verses 17 and 18, on this note of glory, he uses this strange language of it's time for like judgment to begin within the household of God. You know, we think of the judgment seat of like the end of time when like Jesus sits on the throne to kind of like, you know, go between the, the goats and the sheep and who's with me, who's in, who's out. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says that will come at his return. But what Peter says is actually that work in one sense will happen, but is presently begun. That the court of eternity is now in session. That discerning work between who's with Jesus and who's not is not something that happens when you die. It's something that's happening right now within your life. And so for those who are suffering as Christians, this gives us a good framework to understand why this pain and dissonance is because I'm being allegiant to the king who's coming in a world that's going into a mess that only Jesus himself can fix. But it's also a warning for those of us that are comfortable in Babylon. Because if I'm overly comfortable with the way that the world is going, or at least my share in it, it might be that I'm riding on the wrong side of what's coming. He calls us to consider these things. And then in verse 19, he brings it together. What does it mean for us to be a people who are glorious and entering into suffering? Is verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will, that being God's will that we would suffer in a, in a glorious way, let them do what? Entrust their souls to God as their faithful creator. Trust God while doing good. Those who are glorious are those who trust God and do good even in the midst of suffering. Trust God and do good. Uh, N.T. Wright on this idea of doing good, he says this, Peter's call to do good is much more than positive rule keeping, keeping your nose clean and not getting into trouble. It means bringing fresh goodness, fresh love, fresh kindness, fresh wisdom into the community into the family, to the people that we meet on the street. When we do this, we are saying to God, I trust you. This is what you have called me to do. This is what I'm doing with the life that you have given me, even though I'm facing suffering. And I will continue to be this sort of person to your glory. 
See, the way that we're glorious in the midst of suffering is by trusting God while doing good. But, but uh, how do we ensure we become these sort of people who trust God and do good? Peter continues now and says, you do that within a good church with good pastors. You want to be the sort of person who's a glorious sufferer? You want to be the person who trusts God while doing good? He immediately starts talking about the local church, talking about elders and, 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 and youngers is the language he uses, the, the church. It's language of a local church community. You want to be on Team Jesus. You want to suffer and have the gold be purified and this faith be developed and proven as genuine. Peter says you're going to need a local church to do that. Look in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, entrust them, their souls, to the faithful creator at the end of the chapter while doing good. So I exhort the elders. So. He's not moving on to some new thought. It's not a new chapter in his mind. He's continuing. Those that entrust God, so then, I exhort the elders among you. As a felder elder, I understand this. I'm with you guys. I've been through this. I've witnessed Christ's sufferings. I'm a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And what does he say to these elders? Well, he addresses these elders, and, and language of elder sounds weird, but um, we use the language that's far more common today uh, is, is using language of a pastor. But the biblical office and the language that's used is um, that of an elder. And you'll see why pastor kind of has become, you know, the, the word that we use. But he's writing to specifically those who are pastors within the church who, um, well, we'll just let Peter show us. They do what? He says in verse 2, they shepherd the flock of God. That word shepherd is where we get the word pastor out of in the Latin version of the Bible. And so that's why you call people pastors um, is, is what shepherds is the language of what, what they do. Pastors who do what? They shepherd the flock of God among you by exercising oversight. And so they pastor, they give oversight, both of these together. This is a, a shepherd language. It's the same language in the end of chapter two that Peter used to talk about Jesus as the big shepherd and overseer. We just saw that a minute ago. And what they do is they shepherd, they oversee, they watch over the flock, they guide the flock of God, they're feeding the flock of God, they're caring for the flock of God, they're protecting the flock of God, that this is the work that shepherds do. And specifically, that it's God's flock is what he says. What that means is that it's God's church that has pastors. It's not pastors who have a church. He's developing this theology and even a high responsibility for those of us that are pastors here. I'm looking at Isaac and Lorenzo right now. Is that this is God's flock that's been given to us. Paul later on would say to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to this flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, and then he says, which he obtained with his own blood. That as we look out at you, I'm here in front of you guys as a pastor, feeding and guiding and doing something here with this word of God, is that this is a high cost because I see that each and every one of you here who are followers of Jesus, that Jesus died to get you, not just in this room, but in this community. So there's a high responsibility for me and for Isaac and for Pastor Lorenzo in shepherding you, and in caring for and guiding you. And then he specifically says that pastors, those who oversee, are meant to care for God's flock, local church language, when he says, among you. Do you notice that? We read right over that. Shepherd the elders among y'all, is what he says. I've said this a couple of times now. Celebrity pastor is an oxymoron. Internet pastor out there, there's, there's no pastoring for people through your Instagram feed. He is calling for a local among you pastoring where the pastors know the flock and that the sheep know the shepherd. But this is hard work, and so he gives us three guiding um, not buts for elders. You see the not buts there? He gives three not buts. 
He says, not under compulsion, or it can be translated compulsivity, but willingly as God would have. Pastors who are called to the church are called there by God, not from a compulsion of self or the compulsion of others. It's as God would have them. Similarly, pastors are not there for shameful gain, but they're there eagerly. Pastors who lead the church well are those who are not looking for what they can get out of the people, like you guys following me on Instagram or whatever, and now I've got like this count or whatever. They're looking not for what they can get, but what they can eagerly give to the flock. And they're not domineering, but they lead by example. Pastors, good pastors, they do not force obedience. It's not because I said so. It is an exemplified way in saying, come and join me in the way of life. Even though I may not get it right all the time. And verse four then is this high calling that this is what we're called to because elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers, that we are meant to be here within the flock as, as broken but faithful examples of who the chief shepherd is. That as you guys are around your pastors that you should go, I think I get a better sense of what Jesus is like when I'm with them. I think I get what it means for Jesus to lead me and shepherd me because I see how Isaac does it when he meets with me, how Lorenzo does it in the way that he oversees the way that our church is leading. He calls us that we answer to the chief shepherd. That this, is, this is not, at the end of the day, we're gonna answer to God for the way that we lead the flock. But for those who do this humble task well, he says they will receive the unfading crown of glory. The word for unfading here, I don't like to do this as much, but the unfading word is, um, it's the Greek word for amaranth, like a flower. Um, it's a flower whose color doesn't fade. And so he says they're going to be wearing a, a, clower, a, a flower crown. Um, so in the new heavens and new earth, if you're trying to look for pastors, they're going to look like girls at Coachella just walking around with like little <laughs> flower crowns. Um, I can't wait to wear that. Um, so then what's the response? Pastors that are doing it well, that they're awaiting the glory, they're, they're following in the way of Jesus, and they're leading the church. What is, what are the, what's the church meant to do with these sorts of pastors? He addresses in verse five, those of you who are younger. Now, is younger about age or maturity or maybe spiritual maturity? Most would argue that this, he uses a specific word here that is not so much younger as in one of those brackets, but younger as opposed to older, as opposed to elder. And so by saying younger, what he's saying is not like an age divide here, but he's saying those who are elders shepherd the flock in this way. Those of you who are underneath those elders, those of you who are the rest of the church, what you guys are called to is being subject to them. It's the same language he gave us for uh, what we're meant to do to the government or what masters and slaves that relationship is. But the whole thing here is that within the church, the point of the subjection or submission is not for subversion and turning things over, but the sake of the sanctification of the church. So we're called to trust the elders and pastors that we have because we see that as we follow them and trust them and see their lead, that somehow God is using them to sanctify and develop this church in a way that we couldn't have taken it if it was just kind of an anarchy church. And then he specifically says that you guys are meant to be subject not just to any elder, just because somebody walks in and says, I'm a pastor. Yes, there's honor there, but pastoral oversight specifically comes from those who are the pastors among you. And so in the same way, there's no such thing as celebrity pastors. You cannot be shepherded by a podcast, by books, by lectures. As great as they are, I love them. We can geek out on podcasts to subscribe to and books to read all day long. And yet the greatest movement of like growth in learning how to do good and trust God has not come from a book, has not come from a lecture. It normally has come from one-on-one -on -one time with one of the pastors in my local church. 
as I'm talking to them of what I'm going through, or I'm watching their experience of how they pastor their church, how they love their wives, how they care for their family, how they deal with their personal sin, the things that you can't get through Instagram or on a video or in a book. That those are the ways that God is guiding his church, is these very, albeit broken, but faithful examples of Jesus. And then in verse five, he zooms out now, moving into the humility stuff, where he says, everybody, elders and youngers, (laughs) all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. This word of clothing yourself with humility, some would connect it to Jesus clothing himself with an apron, which would be the, the, the clothing of a slave or a servant when he washed his disciples' feet on the, night of his, on the night of his betrayal. He's saying, all of you guys, take up the posture of Jesus and wrap the apron around you that you might maybe not literally wash each other's feet, but serve and care for one another contributing to the community with our gifts, our abilities, our time, our money, our resources, that we put everything on the table for the sake of serving one another. There's no room for prideful hoarding here. And because this is true, then he says, well, not because this is true, but this is true because, as he says, he quotes from Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So why humble yourself? Well, do you want God to oppose you or do you want God to glorify, to exalt you? He goes, well, if you want to, he goes, he just sets it before you. There's two ways here. There's one of you um, being proud and proudful and ex- exalting yourself. And if you do that, Jesus will push you down. But if you humble yourself and serve and care for others, he says, that's the sort of people that Jesus brings up. And so if that is true, then at the beginning of, uh, then of chapter six, he says, therefore, humble yourselves. Because God exalts the humble, because God does this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you. And then he goes into three ways that we can humble ourselves. Three ways to be humble. Three ways to be a community of humility. What he says in these verses 7 through 11 is the three ways to be humble are first, to cast your anxieties. Second, to resist the devil. And third, to await your king. To cast your anxieties, to resist the devil, to await your king. Because so often, pride is the symptom of the absence of these things or it's the absence of these things that's a symptom of pride. I'm not casting my anxieties because I'm prideful or I'm prideful because I don't cast my anxieties. I don't await the king because I think that I can fix things. Well, let's just look at this. In verse seven, he says, be humble by casting, or literally the word is throwing all of your, your anxieties on him. Other translations you have might say that you are to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. I like that one. It's a lot more poetic. So why is this the, a mode of humility, casting our cares on God? Because pride is the belief that this counts on me. Whatever you're going through in your life right now that you think, if, it, if I don't do this, then it's not going to happen, part of that is a good sense of responsibility, but oftentimes it can be a huge response of pride. And that anxiety so often comes, and this is not talking about clinical anxiety. We're talking specifically about the ambient anxiety that comes about specifically when we pridefully carry more of our lives than we ought to. When we're asking and waking up every single day, what should I do? What what, what if I don't do this? This overlying fear and pressure that comes even more so for those of us who are exiles. We're asking those questions. What in the world is going on? Am am I safe? Is is the faith that I'm a part of? What's going on within this? What about the evil and the wrong in the world? Those anxieties that come up. Peter says, don't be anxious about those things, but, but cast them up to God in a status of humility, a place of acknowledging that only God can do it and that God is big enough and cares enough to carry those things. 
The glorious humility is remembering that God cares for you, loves you, that you are not meant to carry some things at all, and you are absolutely not meant to carry all things alone, but that God wants to carry these things with you. But this casting of concerns doesn't mean that we're not doing good, like Peter said. William Wilberforce was a um, leading part of the abolitionist movement in the UK who um, basically um, uh, helped turn over slavery uh, within the United Kingdom he would regularly be working so vigilantly against the injustice that he saw, really doing good while trusting God. And he acknowledged that he needed a day off in order to do that work. He needed a Sabbath day to rest and to cast it all on God because he acknowledged that if I try to carry all of this all the time in the weight of slavery, I won't be able to actually do anything about it. I have to regularly acknowledge that I have to give this to God and acknowledge that he's the one that's carrying this with me. And so ways that you can do this is through prayer, just through praying and giving your prayers to God. You can do this through Sabbath. Sabbath is a a regular day off each week where more than a day off, we're resting from feeling like we have to carry everything. You can even just sit and journal or pray through. I did this on the way over this morning. These three questions, I want, I fear, and then I surrender. If you're just praying through your anxieties, what are the anxieties that you have about what you want? and the desires that you have? What are the things that you're afraid of? You can journal or just pray through those things as you go, and then you end with a time of just going, God, I I cast them, I surrender them all to you. There's other people who will, um, it's littering, so I I can't recommend it, but um, will literally go, and they'll they'll write out their anxieties, and they, you know, munch them up in the end of the ball, and then they throw them into the ocean. Um, And so don't go do this. Like, I'm just looking at how many people we have here, and that would be like, I I, I would get in trouble for that. Um, But find some way, um, even just a posture of of prayer and giving your anxieties, and when you finish, kind of just like, you know, look stupid, but throwing those things up. Literally casting our anxieties on him because he cares for us. That's the first way we can be humble. The second way, he says that you can be gloriously humble is by resisting the devil. Last week in our text, we saw that Jesus proclaimed victory through his death and resurrection over the devil and all spiritual beings. And so he calls us to walk in that victory and yet remember that though D-Day has happened, that, that the enemy has not finally been put into the grave and that the devil still prowls. And so be aware. For those of us in exile, that our greatest enemy is not Rome, our greatest enemy is not Democrats, our greatest enemy uh, is not ISIS, it's not um, Republicans, it's not whoever's in the White House. The greatest enemy is this thing that's prowling like a lion seeking to devour. And so Peter says, be sober-minded and watchful for the reality that there's something going on in this world that's deeper and greater than just what you can see with your eyes. He calls us to resist him not with like a you know, super soaker filled with holy water you know, that we're just like shooting around or like making uh, ninja stars out of communion bread, though I did that once. Um, only me. Um, Peter, Peter says that we resist the devil. You wanna talk about spiritual battle, the way that you do it is by being sober-minded and watchful, by not being forgetful of it and ignoring it, but also not being obsessed over it. And the other way that we can do this is not just by being watchful, but by being firm in your faith. And what he writes is this language of connecting yourself to the, the sufferings of the brotherhood. It's a way of talking about the global church. Another way of talking about the historical church. 
I can say throughout my life, some of the greatest times of when there's spiritual attack or whatever language you want to use or temptation, that there's um, worship on Sundays and gathering together does so much for my soul, discussion groups and being with other Christians. And then specifically for me, just to, to say, what does it mean to connect ourselves to this brotherhood? Is like singing old hymns. Like old, I'm not talking like Hillsong, you know, you know, in 2000. Um, I'm talking ancient old hymns, like 1500s and stuff. Remember, there was a season of so much anxiety when we were like trying to figure out whether or not we were going to move here. And I would just like have to, as a spiritual discipline, wake up every single morning and I would sing this, uh, it's from the mid-1500s, this um, hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I would just walk around with my coffee in the morning, like, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, like words like bulwark. Um, And then, I mean, it's just, it's awesome. It's talking about the power over the devil that that Jesus has, his followers. And like, I needed something to click my brain into place of acknowledging there is a devil, he's coming after me, and yet I have a king who reigns over him. And if I stand firm in him, I have a mighty fortress. Um, or other times like reciting the Apostles' Creed written in the 300s to summarize the Christian faith. I believe in God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Like when I set myself in place where it's not just me by myself, but me in my local community of the church, me in this like you know, universal historical church that has been faithful in the midst of persecution, that that's when like the devil is just like, dude, you are on the losing side of history. And so you can just like ask him to leave. And specifically, um, by connecting myself and, and for you, those of you that feel like you're going through intense either persecution spiritually or temptation, is to connect yourself to the brotherhood, not just globally, but locally. Get into discipleship groups. Come to your pastors who are given to you by God to shepherd you. This is, this is the way that we be humble, is just to acknowledge I have an enemy and I can't defeat him by my own strength. I need the work of God and he, how he places me within his global and local, historical and now church in order to be victorious over him. And then third, in verses 10 through 11, the, other, the last way that we can be humble is by awaiting our king. He reflects on the suffering of this life that in relationship to the uh, eternal glory that we have from Jesus, he just calls it a little while. Like most of us, however many years you're gonna live, he's just like, a little while in relation to what Jesus is bringing. And then three times, he said, four times, excuse me, he drills down by using almost the same word, the same theme, which it's just like, in, instead of repeating it four times, he uses a little bit different words to say the same thing of what Jesus is gonna do when he comes. He's going to restore, he's going to confirm, he's going to strengthen, and he's going to establish. This is where history is going, regardless of what I see on my timeline or what I may feel in my life. It is coming towards the Jesus who is coming to restore, confirm, establish, and build up his people and his, his, his world. And history and dominion belongs to him forever and ever. He is our risen King Jesus. And so out of this, we trust God, we do good. And as we do this, that we acknowledge that even in the midst of doing good and doing justice, that we humble ourselves and we start praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because there are some injustices that as much as we work cannot be righted by anything other than the arrival of the judge of the universe and the king over creation. And then in these final little verses, he gives us a postscript. That was it. That was the letter. Amen. And then he says, P.S. He writes, he says, uh, Silvanus or or Silas, uh, he's the one that delivered the message that brought it to him. So he's like, I've written briefly uh, to you. Um, he's, he's the one that's carrying this message. He summarizes his whole book as being the uh, true grace of God that he's been exhorting us in and declaring to us, calling us to stand firm in it. 
He says that he's writing from this place called Babylon, which didn't exist when he wrote it anymore. He's talking about the city of Rome as if it's Babylon. There again, we have the exile language, who is likewise chosen. He says the church in Rome, just like you guys, is a church of elect exiles. He's developing this whole thing. And then he talks um, about uh, Mark, my son, being a, a term of endearment, not most likely his actual son, um, where he's talking about John Mark, uh, one of his partners in ministry, who, who you may know as the author of Mark's gospel, um, who is here in Rome with Peter, interviewing him, getting the eyewitness accounts for what will become his gospel. And so it's so cool. So you have First Peter right here, and Mark's getting worked on towards the end of it at some level. If not being written, the interviews are happening for what is going to be Mark's gospel. Which brings us to what we're doing next. Some of you were finishing First Peter, and you may have a question where we're going next. Um, we're going to follow Peter's story and what's happening, and we're going to go back to the Gospel of Mark and the story of Jesus. And uh, we're going to be in this uh, throughout 2020, and even the biography and the heralding of the arrival of the king that Mark says it is. So when we read about Jesus going to the, the, the um, isolated place, we're going to do a little mini-series on the spiritual practice of silence and solitude. Um, we're going to do stuff on Sabbath. We're going to do stuff when Jesus is talking about Caesar. We're going to do a mini-series just in time for the election cycle to do something on politics. Um, we're going to have a bunch of little mini-series over the course of, the, of Mark's gospel. So that's where we're going. Next week, be here. It's gonna be, we're going to be kicked off. We're going to spend three weeks in verse 1, chapter 1, uh, with Pastor Isaac is kicking up us off with a sermon on the word Jesus. Um, and so come. We're going to kick it off. I'll give more vision for it, and we're going to have a gift for you if you're here. Um, so be here, 150. There's 150 of them, so if we get too many, sorry. Um, um, I, I guess I'll, I'll get you something. Um, a high five. Um, okay, so well, back, back to the, let's, let's round this out then, which brings us to the very last words in chapter 14, where he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, and this is not what my daughter calls a princess kiss, where she'll come up and she'll say princess kiss. And after watching Disney princess movies now, she like proceeds to try to make out with you. <laughs> Uh, and you're like, it's just so weird. Um, so he's not calling us to that. There's some of you that want to try that. Uh, next Sunday, we're like, hey, girl, I'm greet you with a holy kiss. Um, not calling us to that. Um, th this is obviously grounded in the, the context of when he's writing this. This kiss of love is um, a way of uh, close relationship, of family, of welcoming one another. Um, how, how do we do this today? I'm greeting one another with a hug, with unbroken eye contact. Like, this is the way that you can do it. Um, with presence, gathering with each other, discipleship group, neighborhood dinner. How do we, how do we welcome one another with, with a kiss of love? Looks a little bit differently, but we're called to it all the same. And then he ends, peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is such a good final word for exiles with the temptation of anxiety. I know my uh, wife, Erin, has been, as we've been going through this, she's been like, I feel like what it means to be an exile brings so much anxiety on me. Because I'm working through like the slave master stuff and what it means for us to push against those sorts of injustices today and the government system and, and how do we deal with this? And I feel like if I'm called to submission, is that actually going to do anything about the evil that's going on in the world? There's so much anxiety that comes from the way of the exile, and that's why Peter calls us to cast them on God. And for those who do, he says that they have peace in the midst of exile. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of insult, in the midst of difficulty in community, of scared or dealing with your sin as you try to be faithful to Jesus and suffering brings out those impurities or dealing with their sin as suffering's bringing out their impurities and you have to deal with it. He says, for all of you, there is a peace that is found in Jesus Christ. And this is a beautiful invitation to those of you that do not follow the way of Jesus. 
that you might be chasing glory in some other way or chasing safety or chasing peace. And what the, what the Christian message comes in, the word of Jesus, is that there is something going on in this world that pervades you from finding the glory that you want. And even when you do get some of it, you are just the way that you use it always ends up backfiring. That the safety that you're looking for, that even when you find a little bit of it, it actually endangers you even more. Jesus calls us, Peter reminds us that the peace that you're looking for is found only in the work of Jesus Christ. That glory and peace are found through humility because God gives grace to the humble, to those who acknowledge that for us to find what our hearts want and need, for us, for creation to get what it's groaning for can only come from somewhere else. It's not gonna come from here. And the good news of Christmas is that 2,000 years ago, it did is that in the arrival of Jesus Christ is that what we have is that God who calls us to humble ourselves, that he himself humbled himself in the person of Jesus to walk the way of glorious suffering so that we might be brought into glory. This is what our kingdom hope is on because we acknowledge that everything else falls apart. I, uh, just to end, I, um, my aunt who um, lives here in LA, she uh, works for SpaceX, um, which is really cool. Um, and so we actually got to go on a tour of SpaceX on Friday, which is insane. Um, you just see, you're like walking around, and this guy's job is like, oh, we're going to put people on Mars in a few years. And I'm just, um, and so you're walking around, and they've got rockets, and you're seeing capsules that have been in space. You're like, that thing has been all the way up there. And, and you just, I mean, it's insane the, the, what, what humans are capable of making. She's like, yeah, we're making 27 more of these giant engine things, and that's going to be what takes, you know, 100, 200 people to Mars in a few, you know. You know, it's just insane. And, and yet, I was, as I was walking around, I was telling my mom about this because we went and did it together, that in, in Job, there's this one little chapter called the, the Wisdom Interlude where there's a poem about how awesome humans are, that we can go to the moon. I mean, obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> He's talking about how, uh, how people can go into mountains and bring out diamonds and all these incredible things that humans can do. They can put up all these things and go, so they can go to places that no animal has ever been. And yet at the end of the day, humans can't do anything about wisdom. We can't do anything about finding peace and about finding glory. And every single time that we do, it actually implodes on us and we, we find ourselves in a place worse off than we thought we were. All of human advancement seems to be two steps forward and one step back. We can put somebody on the moon, but we can't deal with racism. Do you see that how insane this is, that there's something going on with the human heart that we as exiles acknowledge that the world that we live in isn't gonna fix itself? And so it's not us going up into the heavens to find it. It's not when we start populating Mars, things are gonna be great and there's not gonna be divorces or child abuse anymore. The reality is it's almost like something has to come through the heavens to us to fix what's going on down here. And the way of the exile is acknowledging in a humble posture that we believe that that has happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That this world is being turned over into something that it could never have been on its own. And so we hold deep allegiance to the Jesus who reigns through all. And in the midst of being in a world that still seems to go two steps forward and one step back, we cling on to Jesus. And as we do, we find peace to each and every one of us who are in Christ. Let's pray.